What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. Today, we're joined by Jordan of the 805 Uncensored podcast. He is an anarcho-communist, and he has a BA in political science. And I really, really enjoy 805 Uncensored because Jordan has such a critical leftist perspective where he's not... Um, it's not just pure ideology. It's not just, you know, spouting talking points. It's, it's very grounded in hard research and data. And, and that's kind of why I've loved listening to his show so much. I was so stoked when he wanted to collaborate. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Jordan. Well, thank you so much for your kind words, Erica. I'm extremely <laughs> humbled to be here. Um, I feel the same way about your show. You have an amazing Aww. podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> we're working hard. We're, you know, we're both doing this work for for not much in return, but because we love this shit. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna we're gonna kind of elevate each other and keep working together, I feel like. I wanna keep collaborating with you, different things. So <laughs> but uh Yeah, for sure. I think it's gonna be fun. Awesome, dude. So yeah, I wanted to just share a little bit more about eight oh five uncensored. Uh, The show focuses on leftist politics, on history, current events, spirituality, music, philosophy, and more, and it's all from an anti-capitalist perspective. And their guests include activists, authors, and even progressives that are running for office. So, um, and, and just correct me if I'm wrong, you guys release episodes Fridays and Saturdays? Uh, Typically, yes. Okay, awesome. Very cool. Um, and you can find them on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on YouTube. So go check them out. So yeah, um, and we I am drinking the Modified Hearst Cocktail today. Um, it's a drink that was drunk. Drink that was drunk? Is that a word? <laughs> is yeah, that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. A drink that was drunk. I think drunk. it's drunken. Drinken? Drunken. <laughs> drinken. Drinken. <laughs> a drink drunken by... Uh, employees of Hearst, William Randolph Hearst. We're crushing it. (laughs) Crushing it. (laughs) Um, Jesse Torres, our resident anti-capitalist bartender, crafted a drink that was based on the Hearst cocktail and called, he called it the improved Hearst cocktail. Um, And so later on in the show, he's going to do a segment where he explains how he made that cocktail. All right, so uh, we're just going to jump into the content, though. I'm just going to hand over the mic to you, Jordan. All right, sounds good. (laughs) So this episode, as Erica suggested, is going to be about William Randolph Hearst and specifically cannabis prohibition. Um, What went into that? It was greed, corruption, racism kind of coalesced together to criminalize cannabis and really provided the stepping stone to the modern war on drugs that we see now. So just real quick, I'll give a background on some cannabis information. Uh, Cannabis users across the United States were well aware of the fact that the federal level, weed's still illegal. As a matter of fact, it's still highly illegal at the federal level. It's classified Mm -hmm. as a Schedule I substance. So ridiculous. Which the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, they define as, quote, drugs, substances, or chemicals with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, end quote. So alongside cannabis, they have MDMA, or ecstasy, LSD, methoqualone, or quaaludes, and peyote. Now, I don't have any personal experience with quaaludes or peyote, (laughs) but I have used MDMA and LSD, and I will say, those are some fantastic substances when used properly. (laughs) 
I'll stress that. Cheers so, to that. These should these should not be fucking schedule one drugs alongside <laughs> weed, which is awesome. <laughs> but also, I think that those are a step up in intensity and like, you know, I mean, if you're scheduling uh, ranking drugs, I feel like weed is so benign. Not nearly as mind altering. Yeah, it can be part of your constant everyday, you know, substance intake, and it won't fuck you up, you know? <laughs> right. And and I just said, they're classifying these as high potential for abuse. Yeah. I don't know about you, but anytime somebody has an acid trip, and they have a really intense spiritual experience, mm-hmm. the next thought that pops into their head the very next day is not going to be like, hey, maybe I should take some more acid. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's like I'm it's incredibly now. hard to get addicted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're for gonna sure. be like, why the fuck would I do that? So interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, methamphetamine is classified as a Schedule Two drug. So that means, according to the U.S. government and their infinite wisdom, they look at <laughs> meth as less dangerous than psychedelics or cannabis. <laughs> Dummies. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> it's almost like it's about something else, right? And we'll get more yeah, to that. Yeah, almost. <laughs> So despite all of that kind of being known already, many many cannabis users still don't understand the exact reason why the substance remains illegal at the federal level. And the answer lies within two men, capitalism, and a couple of its very best friends, greed and racism. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into that. First things first, the first person that we need to talk about is Harry Anslinger. Anslinger was a powerful and wealthy bureaucrat inside the U.S. government, and in the year 1930, he became America's first official drug czar. His official title became the director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was the precursor to the uh, to the DEA. He was also an extremely racist man, which I'll touch more on in a second. So corruption, nepotism are nothing new in American politics, obviously. And at this time in U.S. history, in the early 1900s is what we're talking about, in the 1930s. These practices were rampant. They happened all the time. It was just common practice. Anslinger had been appointed to his position by his wife's uncle, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon. (laughs) And Andrew Mellon was the head of the Mellon Bank, which at this time in American history was one of the very most powerful banks in the entire world. Must be the same as Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as I like to say, every villain kind of needs a sidekick, right? <laughs> so Amslinger teamed up with a newspaper mogul named William Randolph Hearst, which, you know, I'll, I'll touch more on William Randolph Hearst in a second. But first, I want to talk about his father, because that that's where this all really starts. <clears throat> William Randolph Hearst's father's name was George Hearst, and he was a senator And George Hearst was an extremely wealthy man as well, because, I mean, that's how family wealth works. Mm -hmm. Uh, George Hearst had accrued a substantial amount of wealth from mining operations as well as timber operations uh, shortly after the Civil War. Uh, Not long after that, George Hearst purchased 40,000 acres in San Simeon, where um, the Hearst Castle estate is located right now. And there was also Mm -hmm. an estate on that property. And so when Hearst was a kid, the family would take vacations there and it was just a really important place for them to vacation. They they referred to it as the ranch, even though the official name was Camp Hill. Huh. And in 1880, George Hearst purchased the San Francisco Examiner. Remember, he was involved in the timber industry, so that's why he'd mm-hmm. be interested in acquiring the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Seven years after that, in 1887, William Randolph Hearst, at the age of 23, 
uh, was persistent about coming to his father saying, look, I need to take over the newspaper operations. He, he said this over and over again. <laughs> and it, it later became revealed what his motivations were behind this. Eventually, George gave in to William, and he acquired the newspaper. After William Randolph Hearst acquired the newspaper, he became a ruthless publisher. He developed an extremely intense relationship with everybody around him, but particularly Joseph Pulitzer. Joseph Pulitzer was the other major publisher at the time in the country, and he was actually the first person to like perfect yellow journalism, which I'll cover more in a second. But William Randolph Hearst took the legacy of yellow journalism and made it his own. He became yeah. the person that became synonymous with yellow journalism. In relation to Pulitzer, I know that Hearst basically poached most of his talent away from Pulitzer's newspaper and just stole a whole bunch of his employees by offering them better pay. So that kind of stoked the rivalry at the beginning, I remember reading about. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He was willing to do anything and everything to put his competitors out of business. Mm-hmm. So as I, as I mentioned, um, I said I would talk about Hearst Castle. So let's do that right now. In the year 1919, William Randolph Hearst inherited a substantial fortune from his father, a total of $11 million. Or in today's money, that's $164 million. So, Jesus. you know, that helps when you get that from your dad. <laughs> yeah, that would he help. He got a small loan from his father. <laughs> Small loan of $11 million. Fuck. And so um, a few months after his mother, Phoebe Hearst, passed away, Hearst asked the family architect, Julia Morgan, to build a massive estate on the hill overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Remember, like I said, they already had an estate on this 40,000 acres. And this was a wealthy Hmm. family. So this was not a small, like, you don't have a small (laughs) estate. Like that but it wasn't sense. a castle. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a castle. <laughs> so he this, that. this is what he famously said to Julia Morgan. He says, I'd like you to build a nice little comfortable place on the hill. Hearst <laughs> <laughs> Castle. That's just wild. A comfortable place. Having been there. And just um, just to back up a little bit and give people a little context. The One of the reasons why we chose to do this episode together is because we're both in the 805 area, in the same area as Hearst Castle and where all the stuff was happening. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect for both of us. (laughs) Yeah. Julia Morgan was an architect at UC Berkeley, and UC Berkeley's chief patron was Phoebe Morgan, Hearst's mother. And so that's how they were introduced to each other. Uh, William Randolph Hearst saw the work that Julia Morgan had engaged in, and he was really impressed. So he said, look, I want you to build this estate for me. And so Julia Morgan and William Randolph Hearst developed a a very close relationship with one another for over 20 years. Together, they worked on building the castle from the years of 1919 all the way up until 1947. Wow. There was a brief stopping period from 1939 to 1945 because of World War II. And she was like... She was really young, too, while she was doing all of this. Wasn't she, like, early 20s or, you know, right off, right out of college or something? I initially thought that, but I guess I was wrong. She was okay. actually in her 40s, mm. but she was still a pioneer for her time. She was still mm-hmm. doing things that no other woman was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's known by historians as America's first truly independent female architect. <laughs> in addition, so she cool. was also the first woman to study architecture 
at the prestigious School of Beaux Arts in Paris. She was also the first woman to own her own architectural practice <laughs> and the first woman to be officially licensed as an architect in the state of California. Jeez, that is so like, incredible. I mean, <laughs> Even in 2021, you rarely hear of female architects. Yeah, 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 yeah. I work with a lot of female architects for my nonprofit job. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is, it's still fairly male dominated. Yeah, exactly. So like I said, she was, a, she was a pioneer at her time and she would work closely with hers for over 20 years on this project. And in the 1930s, this was like the golden age of William Randolph Hearst. Hmm. By the 1930s, Hearst owned 25% of all American newspapers. Jesus. Which is an incredible amount of power and influence you have over people. Yeah. He had, he had over 20 million daily readers. And like I said, he, he amassed an incredible amount of money by perfecting the practice known as yellow journalism, especially um, in the year 1898, which was important because... That was the year that the Spanish-American War took place. Man, can you imagine someone today controlling, hypothetically, 25% of the media that American people <laughs> consume? That would be insane. Yeah, that would be there crazy. Was, like, one media empire that controlled that much. Like, I, can you imagine what kind of potentially negative, pervasive effects that might have on, like, American politics or, like... You know, cultural divisiveness, any, anything like that. What if we had, like, one of the richest people in the world owning a newspaper? Yeah, that would be crazy. <laughs> yeah, what? Today. Yeah. yeah. Jeff oh Bezos, God. whoa. <laughs> so, like, no, but, like, seriously, in a way, he was kind of ahead of its time. He was kind of ahead of his time. Yeah. Because before Hearst, newspapers were very bland, were very dry, pretty much... You just reported the facts and what was going on. Hearst changed that. Wow, boring yeah. facts. Who's <laughs> a fuck about that? <laughs> yeah, he said facts. You can create your own reality. <laughs> Plus, people are much more interested in reading things that they want to hear versus things that they need to hear. Mm. That's the whole, that's what yellow journalism is, right? You mentioned yellow journalism. That's like yeah. sensationalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, specifically, it's a style of journalism. I can't even really call it that journalism but <laughs> it incorporates a highly sensationalized eye-catchy headlines think of it as like the fake news of yeah. the late 19th and early 20th centuries these big eye-catchy headlines that were not meant to give you any kind of accuracy or information about the world around you it was just meant to increase sales and get eyes on your paper it keeps making me think about the fucking movie anchorman <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sean's shaking his head, but like the whole like, oh, Ron Burgundy is so such a trendsetter because he's giving people what they want to see. He's not just reporting on the news. He's he's doing these sensational things. He's doing funny things. He's doing like, and then that dog ate a sandwich and walked home and took a nap. <laughs> like things that are like people want to eat that stuff up, you know. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's like, did you see this? Did you see the second one, Anchorman Two? Yeah, I don't know. They made a second one? What? I gotta see this shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a few years ago. He's sitting down with, like, the producer. And the producer is pitching him the idea of twenty four the 24-hour news cycle. Like, we need to always be showing the news. And then Ron Burgundy's just stunned because this was a, a foreign concept in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So he was like, you mean you, you want news running 24 hours a day? But, like, what if there's no news? Like, no offense, but you sound like a stupid asshole. 
the news then. <laughs> exactly. That. You know, it, was, it was super funny. <laughs> um, so Anslinger, like I mentioned before, Amer- as America's drug czar, he worked with Hearst to manufacture news headlines that were extremely racist, xenophobic, and of course, highly antagonistic towards cannabis and hemp. I saw something where he said that marijuana led to insanity, criminality, and death. Because, <laughs> you know, all those people that die from marijuana all the time. <laughs> right? All kinds of just ridiculous fucking claims. Ugh. <laughs> I wanted to talk about William Randolph Hearst's politics specifically right now, because that really plays a lot into this. Him and Anslinger were really two peas in a pod. They had mm-hmm. identical worldviews, and they looked at things the same way. <laughs> so... As an extremely powerful businessman, William Randolph Hearst naturally did not like FDR, who was a champion of America's white working class. Hmm. Because of his strong disliking of Roosevelt and the New Deal, Hearst pressured his editors to call the New Deal the raw deal. Jeez. He was focused on, he thought that Roosevelt's approach to um, the Great Depression and saving people from complete economic collapse He viewed that as too revolutionary. He wanted FDR to instead take an even more um, conservative approach where he just focused on saving capitalism. He looked at this as this could usher in a full-on, like, socialist revolution, which seems ridiculous. But it fucking (laughs) saved... It didn't do that. It saved capitalism, (laughs) you know? Exactly. It did exactly what he wanted it to do. So, like... It's it's important it's important to note at at this time in American history because of the great depression because of so much suffering that people were going through socialism and labor unions were extremely popular based <laughs> base <laughs> I always have to throw in a couple of base every episode based oh man uh, can you do a dab Erica can you like this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So besides besides these economic reasons um, for being against the New Deal, Hearst was also known for his strong disliking of minorities. And it was quoted in a biography of Hearst that, quote, Hearst hated minorities and he used his chain of newspapers to aggravate racial tensions at every opportunity, end quote. Mm-hmm. Cool guy. Yeah, real nice. <laughs> yeah, he's a super nice guy. <laughs> I read something about how he had... He owned millions of acres in Mexico that his dad had given to him, and that since there was a push to nationalize that land, he became very anti-Mexican, and he lost that land, and then that kind of fueled his racism. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the Mexican Revolution, around, I think, 1910 or 1911, Mm -hmm. he lost 800,000 acres of timberland to Pancho Villa. Well, fuck. <laughs> and that intensified his hatred of Mexicans in particular. Didn't like black people or Asian people or any other minority group, but he especially did not like Mexican people. <laughs> he, yeah, he had 8 million acres at one point in of Mexican land okay, that was valuable timberland, too. This wasn't just like yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. desert and shrubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So important to... <laughs> I feel like that's such an important connection, why his his capitalist interests would be fueling his racism, you know? Exactly. He hated cannabis so much, it was Hearst that authored the iconic MJ Tax Act of 1937, which was later replaced by the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 under Nixon, 
We could do an entire episode on Nixon, too. That guy was a <laughs> fucking piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, for sure, dude. <laughs> Royal piece of shit. Complete, absolute square. <laughs> fucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I love the 1960s and, like, all things hippie and stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to have an effort to bring back, like, the word far out. And mm. other terminology from that era, I think that would just be great. And I think it would also piss off the boomers. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what? I thought this shit was gone when I was a kid. <laughs> so the MJ Tax Act of 1937, under that, there are a couple of bullet points. Individual possession and sale of marijuana became illegal, most importantly. Medicinal use of marijuana was still legal, but it created a very expensive fee system to tax its use. Anyone who bought, sold, imported, distributed, cultivated, or prescribed it as a medicine had to pay a tax. And anyone who did not pay the tax could be punished by either a fine of $2,000, five years in prison, or both. That, that's another awesome thing, right? Like, so you can't pay the tax, so we're just going to make you pay more money. Yeah, that's so fucking stupid. Prison for five years because you don't want to pay a tax, which is just a... A complete scheme to get people arrested for this train <laughs> even yeah you either pay a tax you can't afford or slavery yeah yeah <laughs> that's, that's a way to put it yep <laughs> so two thousand dollars in 1937 was a fuck ton of money that's thirty eight thousand dollars now that that would be the equivalent of that fine i have a couple of william randolph's hearst quotes surrounding cannabis and prohibition in general that i think are pretty interesting Mm-hmm. So he says, quote, users of marijuana become stimulated as they inhale the drug and are likely to do anything. Most crimes <laughs> of violence in this section, especially in country districts, are laid to users of that drug, end quote. Man, whenever I use weed, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and the last thing you want to do is be violent. Like, I want to sit on the couch and have a snack. Yeah, and be like, hey, man, it's cool. We don't, we don't have to fight. <laughs> the violence that you engage in is like eating an entire pizza by yourself. <laughs> yeah, or like kicking someone's butt in Soul Calibur really hard. <laughs> Such a violent drug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I accidentally spent like four hours watching cartoons. <laughs> cartoons can be pretty violent. Yeah, it's true. So he was also a pure-ass fucking hypocrite. Like, listen to what he said about alcohol prohibition versus cannabis prohibition. He had a completely different stance on this. He said, quote, I am against prohibition because it has set the cause of temperance back 20 years. Because it has substituted an ineffective campaign of force for an effective campaign of education. Because it has replaced comparatively uninjurious light wines and beers with the worst kind of hard liquor and bad liquor. Because it has increased drinking not only among men, but has extended drinking to women and even children. Hmm. Quite a different stance on alcohol prohibition versus cannabis. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, prohibition has many negative effects. Some of these things ring true, but that's still (laughs) hyper-hypocritical when it's such a different stance. All right. We're joined once again by Jesse Torres, who is our resident anti-capitalist bartender. Uh, cheers, Jesse. Hi. <laughs> cheers. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> so good to have you back. <laughs> and thank you for crafting this delicious cocktail. It's a really, really good variation on the Hearst cocktail. Um, 
I don't know if you want to kind of explain your, your thought process behind how you crafted all of this. Yeah, so basically we took the Hearst cocktail, which is already an established cocktail. Um, it was a cocktail that was crafted in the old Waldorf Astoria Hotel Bar uh, in Midtown, New York. And they published a cocktail book. And in that cocktail book, they had the Hearst cocktail. Uh, it was mm. basically a cocktail that already existed. Um, it was a variation of a martini that used sweet Italian red vermouth instead of mm. dry or white vermouth. Um, and it also included aromatic bitters. But um, So it was basically a cocktail that was already in use that was tweaked specifically for the people, the journalists, the workers that worked for Hearst. Um, so I took their, their recipe and I added absinthe, which um, was a common practice back then. They would add mm. liqueurs like... Um, uh, Marschino liqueur or absinthe to cocktails mm. to improve them. Um, and you'll see that in cocktail books at the time. You'll say, you'll see like a cocktail for an old fashioned a recipe, but then you'll also see a recipe for an improved old fashioned where they yeah. add like oh. uh, absinthe. And that's, it's the same way that like a Sazerac is made because a Sazerac is essentially an old fashioned, but it also mm. has absinthe in it, which is like the difference. Whoa, I didn't realize that. Huh? Yeah. Gosh. So, I didn't. I didn't have any understanding of. Um, I didn't realize that the improved Hearst cocktail was actually like that's a formula for a name of a cocktail that has been used for a really long time. That's very cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Like they they had standardized names and classes of cocktails back then um, that we don't really have today. Uh, we've kind of really like watered and dumbed down drinks in a lot of ways. We we say mm -hmm. that every drink is a cocktail now. When back then. A cocktail was a certain class of drinks like when mm. you ordered a cocktail at a bar they would give you an old-fashioned like that's what, what a cocktail is what yeah. i had no idea yeah and oh, if you look at all these these old books they're broken into the different families of drinks so there's like mm. cocktails flips daisies fixes bishops you know and they're all different classes and now nowadays we just say cocktail and that means like any kind of drink but back then huh. it actually meant a specific type of drink Whoa. so so cool yeah, it's really cool. Um, it's unfortunate because prohibition really killed uh, adult and like professional drinking in this country, hmm. Hmm. you know, and then after that, it never really recovered. We kind of have gone downhill since then, unfortunately, but I know a few people that drink professionally. <laughs> I mean, Are you just staring at me right now. <laughs> let's, let's, not, let's not get this wrong here. Like, yeah, we definitely drink professionally. Uh, I know, I know I do, but... <laughs> but yeah, like in the past, like, 15, 20 years, like, things have changed in this country, which is nice. Like, we've seen the resurgence of classic cocktails mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a resurgence in the history and, like, going back to the roots and, like, doing things correctly and using fresh ingredients and using uh, some of these more obscure ingredients that, you know, we didn't use, you know before mm -hmm. but now we're using again like they did back then so um, it's really great to see that because the Hearst cocktail is really a drink that was of its time period like drinking this cocktail is like going back in time and drinking in the 20s or 30s you know it's, it's a really cool <laughs> artifact at the time because have you all ever had a drink like this before I don't think so when you, if you're drinking vermouth with gin it's like a dryer blanc it's a white vermouth mm -hmm. style right and that's like a classic martini Normally, if you have like sweet vermouth, it's because you're drinking it in a Manhattan. 
Yeah. Right? And that's with whiskey. And, you know, we have that association now because uh, it's, it's kind of simplified. But back then, um, when these drinks were first being born and still being ironed out and people were still experimenting, um, there was a lot of variation going on and a lot of experimentation. And this was like a unique artifact that just kind of never really made it past like the 40s, <laughs> you know? Wow. Like, how cool. You just, you just don't ever see that. And I think it's really cool because this was a, this is like a moment frozen in time when the workers of Hearst were going down <laughs> to the Waldorf Horstoria and they were drinking this specific cocktail. Like this was the cocktail that, that signaled and signified that they were part of this group. You know, they all worked uh -huh. for, for W. Uh, R. Hearst and they are all part of like a club kind of, and this was like <laughs> the, the signature drink of the club. It's really cool. It's a really cool piece of history. I wonder how much of that time that they spent drinking this specific drink, they were talking shit about Hearst. <laughs> Cause you know, I mean- All the time. I mean, he had a fairly good reputation personally, but then he did so many brutal things <laughs> on a large scale that, uh, yeah, so. It's a weird combination. <laughs> I also think it, it goes to show you that they were drinking at the Waldorf Astoria, which at the time was one of the best hotels in New York and the country. Mm. Like huh. this was like a know. really upscale and dignified and well-known place. I mean, enough <laughs> that they published their own cocktail book, you know, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to think about that. Like who else was really publishing books because you know, just specifically for cocktails like that. Yeah. So the the journalists obviously going there had great taste. They they knew a thing or two. They were drinking this cocktail, which at the time was, you know, mixing up some of the, the better ingredients. So they obviously like had good taste. They were going to some place that was a bit fancier and a bit more expensive. So they that means they probably had more money to spend on better yeah, drinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. They probably weren't just living in abject poverty while working for Hearst. So yeah, yeah, they 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 weren't they weren't going to the local hole in the wall, you know, and drinking probably like shots and beers like we do today, you know. Yeah, <laughs> they were actually having cocktails made by a really good bartender in a really nice place. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, that's that's kind of cool. Like today, like drinking this cocktail, uh, maybe is not necessarily like a huge deal, like you know, but. I feel like back then during this time, um, it was it was a bit more, a bit more lavish. Hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And this just has such a like, the taste of it is so like I'm a I'm like a hardworking writer who's sitting in the smoky tavern, you know, back of this room, yeah. sipping on this drink. I mean, it really like has the taste for that kind of lifestyle. I feel like. Yeah, but, and something yeah. really interesting to note is that. Now we're used to this kind of ratio in our drinks where there's less vermouth. Hmm. You know, during the mid-century in America, uh, we really got accustomed to using less and less vermouth in our drinks to the point <laughs> where they wouldn't even put vermouth in a drink. It was just straight-up liquor in a martini, Jesus. <laughs> right? But back then, um, a lot of the recipes called for more vermouth than, like, gin or whiskey. Hmm. So this drink is the inverse. It's more gin to vermouth. So that sig signals to me that these guys like the stiffer drink for sure. <laughs> they were looking to get a little bit more, you know, hammered. <laughs> and uh, they were looking for a drier drink and they were fucking drinking the wind. So 
you know, cheers to these guys for <laughs> paving the way for us. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> Drinking to win. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's really beautiful. I think the really great thing about this cocktail with the addition of absinthe is that um, it's so floral. Uh, it's mm-hmm. so complex. Um, it's very perfumed and aromatic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's something that I think has changed in the taste of Americans. Hmm. Having a really perfumed drink like this was more commonplace back then. Really? Huh? Yeah. Like you'll see drinks like for like chrysanthemum or like arsenic and lace, which are really like today you taste them. You're like, whew. it's like <laughs> it's really intense with like the aromatics and the perfume mm-hmm. and like the flowers and mm-hmm. everything like that. And today I think we're not looking for that necessarily yeah i am <laughs> i mean i am too like it's great like yeah. i tasted some like mm, this is really delicious i just want to keep yeah. drinking it but and that's why i really like this because you know we're, we're able to like recreate and drink something from a specific point in time mm-hmm. and really get a sense of place and taste and i think it's like really beautiful <laughs> that we can recreate that that's so beautifully said as well. <laughs> That's really, I love your delivery with all of this shit. It's, I'm so glad that you're, because I don't know any of this context. Like I was literally thinking that cocktails, like craft cocktails have had this explosion recently and that there weren't really as many craft cocktails back in the day. But you're basically reversing my whole understanding of like how cocktail, the history of cocktails. Yeah, cocktails were so much more prolific back then. You know, like Mm. bartenders back then were, it was an actual career. Like it was a discipline. Like people, Mm -hmm. they, they mentored through and, you know, they were like, you know, journeymen and then they were craftsmen. You know, they were basically, they moved up the same way you, you still kind of do in Europe, you see. Um, mm. it, it wasn't just a job you got to get through college or it wasn't a job you got on the side to do something. Like people that chose to be bartenders, it was their profession. And yeah, yeah. they were really proud of what they did and they took pride in that and they took pride in the drinks that they made and um, people respected that. Right until Prohibition, which mm-hmm. like really like fucked America in a lot of ways for drinking. Like... After prohibition, we like we 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 lost all that. You know, we lost the profession side of it, and we lost um, like the respect, and we lost all these beautiful ingredients, and mm-hmm. um, we kind of mm-hmm. fell like into a dark ages for a while. And wow. so, you know, with this resurgence that we've had in the past like fifteen, twenty years, you know, we've we've been able to really get back to that, and I think it's great because. Cocktails are uniquely American invention. Americans invented cocktails. <laughs> you know, it's it's like jazz, like we invented it. And so I'm glad to see that we're embracing it again and we're yeah. going back and relearning it and like appreciating it. And I think it's something that even though we lost for a while, we're able to get back. And I'm glad that you were able to have this on your show and to yeah. share it with everybody and share it with the audience because it's something... You know, for all the ills of America, at least we have this, right? (laughs) (laughs) What a note to end a segment on. (laughs) Fucking A. Dude. Uh, Jesse, I'm... You're just the best. I'm like, I'm so into this. Now I, I want like desperately to do an episode on the on prohibition and how that changed drinking culture in America and how that changed so much else. So um, yeah, if you ever want to really tag wild. team that shit, we should. 
Yeah, let's do it. It's great. It's it's a, it's a part of history that I feel like Americans need to know. And I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, it's part of like law and history. And mm -hmm. I don't know, there's like there's so much depth to it. I mean, it'd be a really cool subject to try. Fuck yeah. And I feel like you already know so much more than I do about it. So <laughs> Jesse, that was so fantastic. Thank you so fucking much for putting this segment together and doing all this research again. And this this drink is fantastic. So I'm a uh, this is going to be one that I drink again and again. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. It's really cool to be able to, you know, go back and revisit this cocktails like this because, you know, I've never had the Hearst cocktail personally. Um, it's kind of like a really obscure cocktail. I, I have a bunch of really old historical cocktail books, um, and I went through every single one looking for this cocktail and didn't find <laughs> it in any cocktail book. It does, doesn't exist. It only exists in the, the Waldorf Astoria wow. cocktail book. Wow. That's, I think, really signals how much of a niche thing yeah. this was. It was really a drink of the workers here. And mm -hmm. um, Waldorf Astoria kind of cemented it in history when they wrote it in their cocktail book. Otherwise, we would have never known. And I think that's really yeah. cool that we actually have this piece because they decided to write it down. It's delicious. I'm glad we did <laughs> because we would have never so known. Good. And it would have been lost to history as just like some yeah. weird little artifact side note you know totally and we can like almost stand in the place of the people that were working for hearst and kind of like experience a bit of what they were experiencing <laughs> very fucking cool now take these brass knuckles and this gun and get out there and sell some newspapers <laughs> yeah see and you're all fucking loaded up on gin and vermouth it's great <laughs> <laughs> perfect <laughs> well Thanks so much for joining us, Jesse. This is so much fun. Really fucking appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. It's so good. Till next time. <laughs> All right. Till next time. Cheers. Cheers. So, like, as I stated, Anslinger had a close relationship with William Randolph Hearst. They looked at the world exactly the same way. They were both extremely racist and had financial motivations behind their crusade against cannabis. And the following are some of Harry Anslinger's quotations regarding people of color and cannabis users, which he was clearly not a fan of. <laughs> and that'll be really apparent in a second. I have a trigger warning here for extremely racist violence and offensive language. Quote, marijuana is the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> he says, you smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother. Reefer oh, makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Whoa. <laughs> Fuck. Woof. So Whoa. <laughs> uh, but I do like to think that, like, weed is liberating as a substance. It makes you think that you're free from things, but that is the worst fucking thing that you could possibly say about what weed does. Like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. God. Ugh. So let's, uh, let's talk about the difference between cannabis and marijuana. Because I did use the word marijuana as part of a quotation associated with Anslinger. But mm -hmm. the proper term is, of course, cannabis. The word marijuana came to be included into the American lexicon out of pure racism that was incorporated by Mr. Hearst and Mr. Anslinger. And like you said, Erica, the Mexican Revolution and end result led to many Mexicans uh, immigrating to the United States. And Hearst lost all kinds of land in Mexico. 
Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. made him develop a deep hatred towards Mexican people. Mm-hmm. In 1930, the same year that Anslinger was appointed the drug czar, Anslinger and Hearst used the term marijuana consistently because they knew that white Americans would associate it with Mexican Americans, and so it was easy to demonize it and implement racism. Historians think the main motivation for Hearst's hatred, like I said before, was because he lost 800,000 acres of land to Pancho Villa at the end of the Mexican mm-hmm. Revolution. This, of course, was happening because Mexican, the Mexican people were uprising against complete capitalist control over their land. I mean, like a central focus of this podcast is going against capitalism. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to add that in. Hearst, at one time, had an astonishing 8 million acres of Mexican land. And like, you know, like I said, this was valuable land. This wasn't just desert. This was mm-hmm. timber land where you mm-hmm. could make millions and millions of dollars. Hearst used his powerful tools and resources in the media to demonize the Mexican people as much as he possibly could. And sadly, the campaign that he used worked. U.S. states began spouting the exact same bullshit that Amslinger, Hearst, and other politicians that did not support cannabis use were spouting. This was actually pre-1930s too. Like, there were, there were marijuana and cannabis laws implemented as early as the 1910s in multiple states. I love that I got somewhat of a, like, some weed history here that I just was totally lacking. Like, I feel like I need to know so much more about that. Yeah, I, the shit. I, yeah, the shit's, like, right up my alley. And what, <laughs> what started a lot of this, too, is, like... I've always been a big fan of Family Guy, and like years ago, <laughs> there there was an episode about weed, and mm-hmm. Lois is arguing with Brian, right? And then mm-hmm. Brian's like, "What are you talking about, Lois? Like you've smoked weed? Don't be a, don't be a hypocrite." And then she's like, "Well, po- well, weed's illegal because so and so." And he's like, he's like, he shuts her up. He's like, no, weed's illegal because William Randolph Hearst <laughs> ran a smear <laughs> campaign. <laughs> what? I would never have thought that show would be delivering that information. <laughs> yeah, you can actually learn a lot from that shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about jazz music, racism, and its relationship with cannabis right now, because that's mm-hmm. also a central focus of this. Anslinger and Hearst hated jazz music. Man, these guys suck. Yeah, they suck so much. They, they suck so bad. <laughs> Just hate everything cool. Yeah, they have no chill. Like <laughs> music, cannabis, <laughs> crazy kids. These black men that just want to smoke joints and play music. How violent of them! <laughs> yeah, God. How violent! Yeah. Hearst famously published a newspaper article with zero evidence, stating that three quarters of violent crime was marijuana related, and of course, of course. They were so opposed to jazz musicians because jazz musicians would frequently use cannabis because of its creative and psychoactive properties. Hmm. And they were black. They started running extremely racist articles equating, um, once again, trigger warning here for this quote. They ran articles stating that crazed Negroes were raping white women and playing voodoo satanic jazz music. I mean, the second part of that sounds dope as hell. (laughs) Voodoo satanic, yeah. I mean, I I would definitely be into that band or <laughs> that genre. 
So, like, really what we're getting at is something that's deeply entrained in American history, which is a concept called the sanctity of white womanhood. Mm. This is the belief that white women constantly needed to be protected from men of color, particularly black men. Yeah. And it was one of the primary driving forces in lynchings of primarily black people across America. Mm-hmm. Most notably, it, so you would have just bullshit false claims of a black man raping a white woman and that happened all kinds of times across united states history and notably that was the driving force behind the 1921 tulsa race massacre but there were Mm -hmm. countless Mm -hmm. other racial massacres and incidents that occurred because of that factor yeah that's such a classic xenophobic trope right like they're coming to take your women yeah yeah oh totally i mean and it's it's Projection. This, yeah, projection. The psychology behind it is so bizarre because it's like we've we've literally stolen your people, enslaved them, raped your women, you know, done all these things to you guys, and now we're gonna say that we should all be terrified of you because you're gonna do that to us, <laughs> you know, like. And I wonder how many of these incidents were like. Oh, look at that handsome black dude that's stronger than my husband. I want to get down with him. And then like, oh, that that guy gets fucking killed. You know, like, ugh. <laughs> fuck. Exactly. I thought this was going to be a fun yeah. episode. What the <laughs> fuck, man? Erica's like, oh, we're going to do an episode on like weed and jazz music. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. A light episode for once. And then we get here and it's like Ooh. lynchings. <laughs> lynchings, yeah. Fuck. Uh, yeah. I know. I <laughs> my bad. In a, in a lot of in a lot of it's my episodes <laughs> that I participate in, whether it's a collaboration or I'm just recording it myself, it's yeah. When people dive into it, they're like, "Fuck, this is dark." That's what happens to her too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Turns out capitalism's pretty dark, dude. <laughs> yeah, politics really sucks a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. Let's get to the let's get to the hemp side of things because I I actually yeah. I did not think that I, I was going to go through all of this so quickly. As far as the hemp side of things go, like I said, Hearst family made a fortune in the timber industry, and so he was paper rich, a complete timber tycoon. And hemp was a new billion dollar crop that was going to grow paper faster and cheaper than timber. It also didn't require a chemical process. So it was much, much cheaper to produce than paper. Mm -hmm. And so in 1938, Popular mechanics basically told Hearst, quote, your tree paper is obsolete and will be replaced mm-hmm. with the future, which is hemp paper. Oh, my God. So scary. <laughs> Threatening their, so their why industry. did he go to all this effort to, to demonize? Because it sounds like this was all basically motivated by this quote, right? So, like, mm-hmm. why didn't he just invest in hemp instead of being a douche? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> If you want to be a good capitalist <laughs> yeah he's he's very stubborn and just wanted to keep up his own industry i guess but yeah you make a good point like <laughs> wh- why not just invest into that you you have the capital clearly but he's already been waging this very racist campaign against marijuana and by extension hemp and so i mean he's already kind of dug in <laughs> on this issue i think yeah and and erica you and i were dming about this because um, this is this is something that we wanted to make an effort to talk about in this podcast was mm-hmm. for centuries hemp was used to produce all kinds of different things from like yeah. rope to boating materials it was extremely durable uh-huh. and it wasn't really until william randolph hearst amslinger pulitzer and all these people that demonized cannabis 
where people even associated hemp with like the recreational form of smoking weed. Yeah, people yeah, yeah. just looked at it as a building material. Uh huh. And hemp is an extremely durable building material. If you know anything about it, it's it's fire resistant. It doesn't get termites, and it also doesn't develop mold because water vapor evaporates almost instantaneously on it. Mm-hmm. Hemp create they make concrete out of hemp which is which blew my mind when i figured that out like we could be producing concrete much more sustainably this fear campaign worked for like 20 years it wasn't until like the 1960s with the the vietnam war protest movement where cannabis started becoming more popular among the american people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then you know nowadays we're seeing a lot more progress like i think over 20 states have legalized it in some form or another and so, yeah. like, things are definitely improving, but we're still dealing with very much so the lasting legacy of what these men did to mm-hmm. wage this fear campaign against cannabis and hemp. I just wanted to add that even with the legalization of weed in different places, the, like, commercialization of it on such a mainstream basis has really displaced a whole bunch of small-scale farmers, has put so many people that were living off of weed in a very peaceful and and sustainable way and, you know, selling it and and making all of their money that way. Now they're out of business because these big, huge fucking weed companies, conglomerates or whatever, are just going through and buying things up. And and it's so hard to compete even when when it's made legal. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why one of the things that I thought was really cool is I saw a number of states, I think Connecticut or Rhode Island, somewhere on the East Coast were doing it where they essentially passed a law where every marijuana dispensary has to be a worker co-op. So they don't have to worry about those big conglomerates going in there like big tobacco or big alcohol, which I think is awesome. Shit. Yeah, I like... I want to do an episode just about that because that's brilliant. That's so cool. Yeah, I can see if I can find more information for you. Uh, I also wanted Fuck to yeah. say, like, even though we're making progress, we still have over 40,000 Americans that are in prison yeah, because fuck. of cannabis. Like, why are, why, if it's legalized, why do they get, to, why do they have to stay there? <laughs> so fucking stupid. Because <sighs> of slavery, because of 13th Amendment, because, yeah. Profit motives. Exactly. So William Randolph Hearst ended up passing away in 1951 in Los Angeles. And Julia Morgan, the architect that worked on the castle, passed away in 1957. And after that, they completely gave Hearst Castle and the property to the state of California, where it's since been basically turned into a museum. The castle draws 750,000 visitors annually which wow. is a lot of people for a you know, pretty small area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like awesome. uh, Big Sur, which is north of San Simeon and Hearst Castle, but you have to go through there to get there, actually, I found out, draws more people than Yosemite. What? <laughs> what? That's on a crazy. Basis. I know. So, huh. so tiny. Just Yeah. I never would have guessed that. And you always see like zoos of people in Yosemite. So, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Did you touch on at all the chicago circulation wars (laughs) did you hear anything about that because that shit was crazy i'm not familiar with that i think it was between like 1910 and 1912 or it's like yeah around that time hearst 
buys a newspaper in Chicago and there's like this kind of circulation war where they're trying to put the other newspapers out of business and stuff. And then they like, they hire the newsies that they're using to distribute the papers. They're basically telling them to like distribute it by force. Like, well, they armed them. They armed them, yeah. With saying like brass like, knuckles and guns and shit. Yeah, <laughs> like go out and make sure that people buy these papers and like and take Jesus. down the other war, the like newsies from other newspaper companies, like take them down. There were like twenty seven newsies killed in two years, um, and and there were policemen that were police officers that were beaten by these like warring gangs. And then they, and then these are kids. These are kids. Yeah. But then they actually like employed actual Chicago gangs to do some of this work to like push their papers and to put these other papers out of business and to crush the competition. Like just brutal shit. That Whoa. I, yeah. So I want to like, I want to learn so much more about that. Cause I was just like, what the fuck? And we didn't touch too much also on the Spanish-American War. Yeah, so basically, he used his newspapers to scapegoat Spain. The The USS Maine, just for context for your listeners that might not know, was a warship that was stationed in Havana Harbor. Mm-hmm. So in 1898, William Randolph Hearst wanted to go to war with Spain. At this time in, in history, we were pretending to be friends with Cuba. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and so hearst uh spreads this information that spain sinks the uss maine is determined to get us into war and it worked the american people went crazy people in Mm -hmm. government went crazy Mm -hmm. and then we got into a full-scale war with them um, immediately turned our back on the cuban people started sending in american corporations taking sugar plantations in cuba And then shortly after that, the American Mafia came into Havana. Havana was the original Las Vegas. In the the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, all the way through there, wealthy politicians, business leaders, bureaucrats, etc. would go down to Havana and they would engage in activities that they would never imagine being able to do in the United States. Gambling, prostitution, stuff like that, all that shit that goes on. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Wow. Enslavement. Oh, nice. Ugh, goddamn it. And then there was no evidence that the Spanish torpedoed that ship. No, they didn't. All the evidence indicated it was a complete accident. It was our fault. And that we accidentally lit a fire or something, and that that created something. So it was completely fabricated by Hearst getting us into this fucking war. <laughs> yeah, think of it as, like, the first Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Dead. And that's the only war the U.S. has fought without a good reason. <laughs> the only one. Crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, that was one of the earliest examples in American history of the media creating a war. Yeah. So he got his his hands in all kinds of good shit, you know? (laughs) Really. Yeah, he could do whatever he wanted. Anything that he wasn't able to do, he was determined to make happen. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just unbelievably ruthless. Oh, there is one thing I wanted to read. Because Uh um, Hearst Castle in its heyday in the 20s and 30s was known as having movie stars and Hollywood's elite. And so somebody asked Hearst before 
why he wasn't interested in working in motion pictures. Mm. And his quote says it all about the type of person that he was. (laughs) Just a vindictive fucking bastard. (laughs) So Douglas Fairbanks Jr., this is from the... uh, PBS documentary, Hmm. American Experience, uh, Citizen Hearst. Mm -hmm. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. remembers his father asking Hearst why he preferred concentrating on newspapers with their limited regional appear rather than spending more energy on motion pictures and their worldwide audience. Fairbanks recalls Hearst saying, quote, I thought of it, but I decided against it. Because you can crush a man with journalism and you can't with motion pictures. The fuck? (laughs) What the fuck? I mean, A, that's wrong. I'm sure you can crush a man with, with motion pictures by just fucking making a movie about him and, you know, smearing him. But, like... Oh, yeah. I'll get to Citizen Kane in a second. Oh, yeah! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I didn't realize that that was so... That was shitting on him so much. <laughs> I learned that in my research, which I, yeah. I thought was super interesting as well. Uh, so William Randolph Hearst was America's first true media mogul. And his extremely wealthy and powerful status was the real-life inspiration for Orson Welles' Citizen Kane from 1941, which is widely considered to be one of the greatest motion pictures in history, if not the greatest. And it was a brutal depiction of the mogul. Welles was only 24 when he wrote it. So, like, the balls, right? You're 24 (laughs) years old. you're, You're attacking basically the most powerful person in the entire country. He was 76 at the time. Biggest has, media mogul probably in the world. <laughs> yeah. And a man with a reputation where he would just ruin your life if he <laughs> wanted to. Yeah, totally. What a badass. <laughs> right? Good job, Orson Welles. <laughs> so he writes this movie that's just a de- brutal, brutal depiction of William Randolph Hearst. And Hearst knew this. And so he tried everything that he that he could do to block the mm-hmm. release of the film <laughs> using his connections in Hollywood but he wasn't able to block the release of the film however he was successful in the sense that he was able to undermine the film for a quarter of a century so it wasn't yeah. until like the late 1960s where Citizen Kane started getting the recognition and appreciation that it deserved makes me really want to go back and watch it again because i thought it was like too uh, sympathetic portrayal of him. I mean, I don't even, I don't even remember the significance of like Rosebud, the fucking sled. <laughs> like I don't even. I mean, it's, he's remembering some fucking well, touching. Well, it's a depiction of this like ruthless capitalist who has no significant human connection. So the only oh, thing he wow. cares about when he dies is a fucking sled. Oh my god, that's so fucking and he's, true. Like, completely alone. <laughs> Charles Kane is a media mogul that makes his money in yellow journalism, and then at the end of the movie, he dies alone in his fancy mansion. Uh, <laughs> you guys just nailed it. Okay, thank you. We should watch it again. Though, I know. Because I wasn't aware I it was watch specifically it now. about Hearst mm. when I first... I, I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, I've seen it in like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, man. <laughs> but yeah, that movie was released 10 years before he died. That fucking quote it's just like you you can't crush a man. Crush a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's what he was always focused on. Yeah, this is how your mind works. Beating somebody else. And that's why you want to go into this industry? Like what the fuck? He I even heard that he really he was kind of the first media person to make to make figures like himself 
kind of rank them amongst politicians. So he really like pitched himself as this like political leader almost who was like meeting with presidents and meeting with, you know, whatever secretaries from other places, you know, he was, he was pitching himself as like the political elite in the country. Um, and, and he was successful in that and kind of crafted the, the, you know, the media mogul persona that is just in there with all the politicians kind of pulling the, the strings, you know? <laughs> so yeah, he was an uh, important figure to know about for so many fucking reasons. <laughs> he was like the Rupert Murdoch of his time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. <laughs> Good point, man. The guy just had a massive fucking ego. He also collected like literally everything, like shoes, <laughs> um, artwork. Zebras. Uh, when I was doing Zebras, research yeah. on him, <laughs> when I was doing research on him, the historians basically said it's difficult to think of things that William Randolph Hearst did not collect. What? What the fuck? I'll also add one more quick fact, since this is the Cocktails and Capitalism podcast. <laughs> nice. William Randolph Hearst actually was not a fan of hard liquor, mm -hmm. and he didn't drink it. He only ever drank beer and wine. A weak-ass bitch. <laughs> <laughs> right? <Totally. laughs> I know. And here he is, like, trying to be fucking Gatsby, throwing all these fancy parties. <laughs> And he just has beer and wine. <laughs> and he didn't smoke weed. Stick I, to the rosé, you old fucking square. <laughs> <laughs> well, as as kind of a counterpoint, though, I did hear that when he was at Harvard, he was throwing huge beer parties and also sending, like, sending, like, bedpans and things filled with hu his own shit to his professors. He... <laughs> So he got expelled fuck? for the shit. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, I mean, which makes him just sound like a frat boy. But like, he wasn't. He was I also. I like beer. Okay. I like beer. Beer's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting. It's I'm like getting Kavanaugh vibes. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you got that. <laughs> Dude, I'm definitely getting his vibes. <laughs> you think Chris oh, collected calendars? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> All those fucking calendars. I had five beers today. No. <laughs> I mean, the fucking, the castle, it's not just like a castle. It's three giant houses on top of a hill overlooking the ocean on 270,000 acres of undeveloped land. There's like a exotic animals yeah. reserve. Yeah, he's got a private like zoo. Flamingos yeah, and fuck. all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen, yeah, I've seen like zebras there. And I think he used to have even more crazy exotic animals for a while back in the day, which is probably yeah, not great so. for those animals because it's like California coast, you know, <laughs> like not the best, but he wasn't too concerned about that. No, it's just entertainment. Like I can own these animals and you can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Suck on that, Americans. <laughs> just a prestige thing. Yeah, yeah but yeah. a tremendous asshole. <laughs> What a way to end. <laughs> Before we started recording, I wanted to make an effort to say that um, since I'm in the Central Coast 805 area, whenever I drive through San Simeon, Hearst Castle area, I make an effort to pull over to the beach and make sure I light up a joint as just a giant <laughs> fuck you to Mr. Hearst. 
dude. Cheers to that shit. That's the best. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. You know, the next time I drive around there, I'm gonna I'm going to observe your ritual. I'm gonna do the exact same fucking thing. <laughs> Please do. Spread the tradition. I love it. <laughs> I feel like that's like the best note we could possibly end on, really. Putting the bud in rosebud. <laughs> Is that anything? <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. Okay. You did a thing. <laughs> Such a good place to smoke though. Oh man, gorgeous. Yeah, spectacular. Water's so pretty. Oh my god. Yeah, the rolling hills, the green of like these grassy rolling hills. Uh, so nice. If you guys can go and check it out. I mean, I know it's kind of expensive to go and tour it, but <laughs> it's a beautiful area. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah, for sure. You did such a beautiful job of putting the story together. I I can't thank you enough for like just pouring yourself into this research and for like opening my eyes to the story of William Randolph Hearst, which I knew very little about, even though he's someone that's in my area or was in my area and the history is right here. So thank you for suggesting this topic and for teaching me so much about it and teaching our audience about it. It was fantastic, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for letting me come on your show. This has meant a lot to me. I I love your podcast. You always have amazing guests on here. I I just feel, I don't know. I'm like a a loss of words. I'm like, wow, you actually (laughs) want to hear what I have to say? Dude, fuck yeah. I've, I've literally loved listening to your show. So, and, and your, your takes on things are really clear, really based in fact, really based. Really based. Really. Yeah. Super based. (laughs) (laughs) And like, Everyone else, go check out 805 Uncensored. The show is great. The material that they cover is great. If you want, you know, I listened to an episode about China recently. You did such a fucking good job about covering that topic and the history there. Um, so do you can, do you want to give some um, links or, or not links, but do you want to tell people where they can find your show? You can listen to my podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all those major ones. As far mm-hmm. as like social media goes, you can find me on Instagram at 805uncensoredpod. I'm also on Twitter at 805uncensored. That's where I'm most active. I'm on nice. Twitter all the time. You seem so well adjusted for being on Twitter all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have my mental lapses, but I'm somewhat okay. <laughs> Um, if you want to get in contact with me, you can also send me an email. Uh, I'm reachable at 805uncensored at gmail.com. That's pretty much it. Dude, rad. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. I, I really had such a blast with you. <laughs> this is a really great time. I learned so fucking Likewise, much. Likewise, I'm definitely <laughs> going to get you on my show, and there will yeah. be a lot more future collaborations. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> well, cheers to you, and cheers to uh, this st- wonderful story you've put together. <laughs> Cheers, fuck off William Randolph first. <laughs> More like Rose Butt. <laughs> <laughs> keep that keep that in here. Oh, fuck no. <laughs> that <was> so bad. <laughs> More like Rose <laughs> right, I'm stopping the record. Podcasters gotta eat too. And drink because this shit is depressing. Your donations help us buy new equipment, pay for platforms, and get drunk. <laughs> You can find us on Patreon and gain some fun benefits like our rad enamel pin. 
That's at patreon.com slash cocktails and capitalism. If you want to support the show, but you can't donate, we get it. We'd love for you to leave us a review. Also, thanks to Dreamweaver, that's D-R-M-W-V-R, for the use of our theme song. You can find them on SoundCloud or Spotify. And lastly, we're putting out a call for listeners to send in their stories about how they became anti-capitalists. If there was a particular issue or experience that woke you up to the evils of our for-profit capitalist system, we want to hear from you. Send your stories to cocktailsandcapitalism at gmail.com, and we may include it on an upcoming episode.